Well, good morning. You know, as all of the kids are leaving, one of my favorite sounds of the Sunday morning, I'm thinking, uh, Josh, over there, Ollie should stay because he could teach us what it means to dance in freedom during worship. I love it so much, Ollie. Cody, get him up here with you next time, okay? Let's do, let's, let's disciple these little ones early. Speaking of discipleship, you, you've probably uh, heard me say, tell, say these names before and tell a bit of the story, but I'll tell it again because it's so important to me. One of the reasons, probably the primary reason that I am up here doing what I'm doing right now, preaching and also doing pastoral ministry generally is uh, because of three men in my life who... Their names are Ike, Ike Bergen, Ralph Galigi, and Ken Dick. Three men who influenced me and impacted the direction of my life more than anyone else. Now, the person overall who's probably influenced my life, you know, aside from Christ Himself, is my wife, uh, because we've spent the most time. I've spent the most time with her in my life than anyone else. However, I, she doesn't count this morning because I said men, three men, okay, and so that that excludes her at, the, at this point. And, but I do want to say, though, that uh, the, the final influence that Marcy will have in my life if I die before her, uh, and uh, these three men, I, Ken and Ralph, um, I outlive me, is that I've said, Marcy, I want those three men to all preach at my funeral. And so I, I, uh, I say that because, uh, you know, I want to just torture all of you one last time with a really, really long sermon. No, just kidding. These are faithful men who preach the gospel. And I seriously will have all three, if they're still alive. It's the Saskatchewan way. I mean, I, uh, I preached at my grandmother's funeral, and I was the third preacher in the service and the only one who spoke in English. It was long. And, you know, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, in fact, the, the other person who has influenced me pastoral more, pastorally more than others, and this was not before I became a pastor, but now actually is Pastor Ron Van Acker. Incredible uh, disciple, uh, mentor in my life uh, who has discipled me. And so, uh, Marcy, you can add a fourth one to the mix. And that way, we can start the service with lunch and end with FOSPA, with supper, okay? We can have a meal at either end. Come on, guys, work with me. Boy, you're a hard crowd. This is unreal. Anyway, I share this story because all of us, I think, can name someone or maybe multiple people who have deeply shaped and influenced our lives. Uh, some have shaped us that we're not even aware of. I mean, it starts when we're born. Our parents speak into our life, teachers, coaches, friends, employers, employees, aunts, uncles, friends, even maybe more than we realize it especially these days, media, social media, um, popular personalities and culture or musicians that are even unknown to us pour into our lives and shape who we are. They shape how we think. They shape the decisions we make about what we're going to be and what we're going to do with our lives, how we live. It's very easy, actually, to influence somebody. When I was uh, brand new in ministry, 1994, Pastor Ralph, one of my three, and I'm going to come back to these guys occasionally, he called up a group of uh, young pastors who were all in, we were all in our first year of ministry. He said, guys, I want to take you to a leadership conference. John Maxwell, Edmonton, let's hit the road. Okay, so we, we hit the road, go to Edmonton. John Maxwell was a very influential pastor in the United States, very, very successful, if you want to use that word, incredible leader. He's gone on now to do mostly 
primarily mentoring and coaching of leaders and young pastors, right? So we're at this conference and he tells a story. He told a bunch of stories like I like, I like doing about uh, uh, three young guys that he took, three young pastors that he took out for lunch one day. And he did this regularly, like weekly. He would take guys out and mentor them around a meal, right? So he's got these three guys in a restaurant they're all looking over the menu. They don't know each other very well. And they're all kind of figuring out what to do, what to eat as they're talking. And server comes to the table and, and John said uh, he determined that he would be the first one to order. So in his mind. So the server comes and he jumps on me. He says, I'm going to have this and such salad, right? And, uh, and everybody's like, oh, he's eating healthy. I guess we probably should too. So everybody, the, the young guys are all scrambling. What do we do? So they're looking quick at the menu. It's like, yeah, I'll have this salad. And the other guy's, I'll have this salad. And I'll have this salad. Server walks away and John, John says, could you come back for a moment? I changed my mind. You know what? I, I would really love the bacon cheeseburger with fries and chocolate shake. And all of these guys are like, ugh. Now they can't change their minds. It would look really silly. So the server walks away, three salads and a burger. And then he tells them, guys, I did that for a reason because I totally influenced what you did. I totally influenced what you did. That's how much power, really, in a, in, in, uh, that you have in another person's life. And that's just a small thing, like a meal. So as much as we like to think that we're our own people, you know, I'm, a, I'm my self-made man or woman here, I walk my own path. The reality is that all of us are affected by people around us. It's the whole reason why advertising exists. I mean, you know, if we weren't swayed by the thoughts, opinions of others, advertising wouldn't be a thing. Uh, others peop other people's views, stances, words, actions profoundly affect us and the direction of our life. You know, the people that we trust affect us in a certain direction, but the people that we don't trust also affect the direction of our life because we say we're not going to do that, so it forces us in that direction, right? It's still, they still have incredible influence over us. The point is, we all have mentors. We all have people who speak into our life. The question is, who are we going to follow and allow to influence us? How do we decide who to listen to and allow ourselves to be influenced by? And what will shape or determine the direction of my life? So we're going to look at that exact relationship this morning. Beginning of January, Pastor Chris Ross did a fantastic job talking about uh, the church as a household of faith, the family of God, and so this is our series, Family Matters, and he said that uh, the language, the biblical language is as a family, that we are a household, we are brothers and sisters. And then I, I spoke about the family and accountability relationships, um, we had a, uh, then we took a break and we did a series on the Trinity and, uh, and now we're coming back to this because last week Pastor Jeremy talked about parenting relationships and today this mentor-disciple relationship. Then we're going to take, I think we're coming back to it again, but we're going to take a little break during uh, Easter season as the, the lead up to Easter during Lent as we look at the Gospel of Luke and, and the path to the cross. Now because the church is a family, and we relate to each other as brothers and sisters on a foundation of love, <clears throat> we, um, we influence each other. And so who, why, and how we do that is very important. Um, it's not so common these days, although central, because there's a lot of Dutch people have, <laughs> sorry, 
A lot, of, a lot of large families. In fact, there's one family at Central that has like nine kids, right? And that's awesome. So when you get into a situation like that, and I grew up with aunts and uncles, uh, my family, lots of kids. In fact, my uncle uh, Jake and Aunt Tina, who lived in Waldheim, Saskatchewan, man, they had a large family. And they raised, I think there was 11 of them in a, in a house that was around 900 square feet. So it's like people are finding every corner they can, they can imagine to do stuff, right? And we would go and have family gatherings there, and it was loud and noisy and packed, and it was rustic, man. It was like a cash-and-carry toilet. There was no, no running water there. It was like, it was fantastic. I remember those kinds of things, right? So <clears throat> nonetheless, large families, you have older siblings who literally parent the younger ones. And uh, I mean... Mom is so worn out by that time, she's like, yeah, you deal with it. No. So families aren't perfect, but it's beautiful in that kind of relationship where older teach the younger and the younger respond to older siblings because there's so many people to look after. Yeah, there's family fights. What wicked family doesn't get into a little bit of a spat now and again, but the, but the, the and that's true in the church too, but the reality is we're here on a foundation of love to build in and speak into each other's lives. And that's the relationship we want to talk about this morning. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to look at just two verses today. And to set a little context for 2 Timothy, it is, a, uh, it is a, the last uh, letter that Paul wrote. And he wrote it, you know, he could have focused on major doctrinal issues, and yes, it's in every letter that he wrote. There's, there's good doctrine and theology everywhere. It could have been addressed to a whole church that way to teach them. But he said, no, I'm going to focus on just one, one younger guy in my life that I've spent so much time with. These are my final words. He was, Paul was executed right after he wrote this letter, shortly afterwards. He knew his time was coming to an end, and he says, I've got to write to Timothy. Uh, I want uh, one last chance to pour into his life as a mentor to a disciple of mine. He's my child in the faith, so let's let's do this thing. So that's the context. Why don't you uh, stand with me? We're going to read just a couple of verses here. So Paul said, "You then, my child, be family language. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus." And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Help us to be impacted by it, that these would be more than words, that they would be uh, something to guide our lives as we think about uh, mentoring and discipling within the family of God. So teach us today, Father, by your spirit. Through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, have a seat. So here's the pattern of uh, mentorship and discipleship that has shaped the church since Jesus came and called his disciples to follow him. Here's the pattern. We are called to follow and then entrust to others. That's basically the, the, the thesis of this message. We are called to follow and then entrust to others. We are allow ourselves to be influenced by the gospel, and then we are to influence others with the gospel. If it takes a cheeseburger, a bacon cheeseburger to do that, so be it. But it's not about the burger. It's about the gospel and shaping someone, else, someone else's life in that, in that. This is the call for the entire church, not just a few select leaders. 
And uh, so not only do these verses provide for us uh, a template or a bit of a pattern for us to follow, but they also will answer some of our most common excuses for why we don't do this, and we all have them. So the pattern given to the church is this. And, and what we're going to do is take 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 and flip it upside down because Paul talks about, um, you know, the first verse talks about the means and the second verse is the goal. So we're going to flip it and we're going to talk about the goal and then we're going to end with the means, which is kind of like the practical application. How do we get there? Okay? So the pattern is this. First of all, to entrust the gospel to disciples and then to mentor in the grace that God gives us. So number one, entrusting disciples. Here's the goal. Verse two, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. The goal is to entrust disciples with the good news of Jesus. Paul spent years doing this with Timothy, training him, walking through the gospel, through the Bible, how to live it out, how to share it, how to lead others, how to share the gospel. And Paul's goal for Timothy is that it doesn't end with him. And this idea wasn't new to Paul. It's exactly what Jesus did with his disciples, right? The disciples of Jesus were told to go and make more disciples. Jesus called 12, he invested heavily in them, and he asked them to go make more disciples. You know, um, Christianity, like, like the, 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 fir- the disciples of Jesus weren't called Christians till later. They were disciples first. A disciple is a follower and a learner. Jesus called people to follow me learn from me. <laughs> you know, take whatever it is that you carry and put it on me and I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to show you the kingdom of God and I'm going to show you who God is and what he looks like and what God does. I'm going to lead you to salvation in me. So discipleship doesn't stop. It is intended to perpetually carry on. Paul passed on the gospel to Timothy who commanded to pass it on to people who will be able to pass it on yet again. The faithful witness of the gospel does not stop with us. And I don't know why I'm talking about death this morning, but for whatever reason, I think to the end of my life, and I think when I'm on my deathbed and I'm about to pass, if it happens that way, I hope that I can look around at people around my bed as I'm dying who will be able to continue fighting the good fight, and hopefully I fought it till the end, who can take that torch and keep running with it that baton. That's what I hope for. And that's the goal that God has for each and every one of us. So, what does this discipleship look like? What has been entrusted to us? So let's back up one chapter and go to chapter 1, verse 13. The words will be on the screen. And Paul wrote this. Follow the pattern of sound words, of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy is commanded to guard the good deposit, but not to hoard it, not to keep it to himself. So what exactly is this good deposit? What are we supposed to take and entrust to others? Well, he says, he defines this good deposit as the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So let's break it down there. Faith. Faith, when people say, oh, I have faith. <laughs> well, everybody has faith. I mean, you know, 
I have faith that this chair is going to hold me up. That's why I sit in it. But, that, but what are we talking about when we say I have faith? We have to define that a little bit. Faith is the belief or more commonly the trust in what Jesus has done. Specifically, his death and his resurrection as the foundation for our salvation and relationship with God. It's fundamental for every Christian to know and understand. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? If you um, had a minute or two to quickly share the good news of Jesus Christ, the deposit that has been given to you, if you were to share that with someone else, what would you say? I think we need to rehearse this and have a bit of an idea. And so Pastor Jonathan Newfall, I like his format. He says, God, man, Christ response. You can, you can talk about creation, the fall, God's plan of redemption, his plan to restore, you know, creation, uh, fall, uh, redemption, restoration. But uh, God, man, Christ response is fantastic. Do you know it? Do you know what this means? God, we need to talk to people that God, people have uh, a lot of strange ideas about God. First of all, which God are we talking about? But secondly, they, they view God as some cosmic killjoy in the sky who's just there to take away their fun. Is that who God is? Yes, God is a just and a holy and a pure and a perfect God. He's also a God of love and mercy and compassion. I mean, we have to give people a true picture of who God is. And he always acts in a certain way based on his justice and holiness and righteousness and all of those things. So we need to say God is God loves you. God is holy and he's pure and he wants us to follow him because the, the way that he's laid out for us is just, it, it's gonna make our lives truly happy. He's not here to destroy our lives. He's here to make our lives abundant. Then we talk about man. We're the ones who kind of mess this up. So God gave us things to do and commands to obey. And we said, no, nah, I'm going to do it my way. So how does that go? That's what sin is. It's rebellion. It's, t- it's going our own direction, making our own decisions and saying to God, what you, what you say, I don't believe. It's not important. And every time we do that, it really messes things up and it's called sin. And, one, and sin must be punished because God is holy. And we all face the wrath of God because of our sin. That's bad news. But the good news is that Jesus, sent by God the Father, God in the flesh, came to deal with this thing called sin. He took, he, he, subs, he switched this out. He took our place. He said, you go over here, I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna allow myself to be nailed to the cross. A person who never sinned, a perfect, holy sacrifice of God to take the wrath of God upon himself and bear our, the punishment of our sin. He did that. Why? Because he loves us. Man, that's good news. Huh. And so when we respond to him and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did, that you took my place so that I don't have to bear my own sin and that you have now given me a hope and a future, You've taken the wrath of God. You were punished for me. Thank you. And I respond to him in faith and I believe in what Jesus did. And I repent of my sin and say, I want to follow you. That's the gospel. God, man, Christ response. Do you know it? Do you believe it? But this is just the starting point, this faith. And a lot of people just stay there. And they'll share that. But in their own lives, they don't go on 
to really explore the depths of that faith, of that gospel. Um, this is the entry point, but we're called to know so much more. Follow the pattern of sound words that you heard in me, and Paul went deep. How is it that Jesus took our sin? What is exactly the punishment for our sin? Who is God exploring all of his attributes and his character? What does it mean to be holy, to be righteous as God is holy? Why is God going to judge sin? Why did Jesus rise again? What is the resurrection after, you know, for, for the believers when Christ comes again and all of that? What is that? What does that mean? Why is it that faith alone in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ saves us and not anything else? Why? And we need to explore all of these things. That's our faith. All of these are part of what it means to trust Jesus and they are questions every disciple needs to understand. The goal of discipleship is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal of, our, of discipleship. Using the whole Bible to work through it to understand this great salvation. But that isn't all. Paul's, Paul wrote, the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, we can have all of the head knowledge we want in the world, but if it doesn't make its way to our heart, and then the way we live, it is a pretty meaningless faith. The distance between the head and the heart is so, so short, but it's the greatest distance to overcome. It isn't what about what we know, but our faith is about what we love. It has to do with the affections of our hearts, the things we long for, desire. Do we love God? Do we care about the things that God cares about? Do we hate the things that God hates? By the way, the thing, and I shouldn't say thing, but what God loves the most is people. The two greatest commands Jesus said are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love others as you love yourself. I tell you, if we can't, like, I mean, that's a lifetime of work. If we can't get past that, if we can't engage with that, then all of the head knowledge in the world that we have is meaningless because it has to translate into how we treat people. Behavior is always founded on belief. Uh, ultimately, it's far more important um, what people see us doing, what we do, not just what we say based on head knowledge. Now, we've seen a lot of this lately in the news, and I'm not talking about Ottawa. I'm talking now about Russia and Ukraine, but, okay? This has to be practical for our lives in every realm of life outside of these walls is where it counts the most, our love for people based on what we know and what we've trusted Jesus for, okay? But how we live, what we do has far more impact than what we say. And we've seen this in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So Russia says, oh, no, 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 we're, we're withdrawing, we're going home. And, um, and other countries are looking and going, well, your actions don't indicate that. You're pulling more people to the border, you're doing more military exercises. So what we should believe is based on what we see, not on what, what we hear. Make sense? Same with our lives. Our faith is based on not just what people hear, but what they actually see. Your faith and your love that are in Christ Jesus. We need to learn more of God. We need to love more of God. 
and then we need to we need we need to love more uh, of God, and then we need to live more like Him. Learn more of God, love more of God and His ways, and live more like Him. So here's a crucial point: living as followers of Jesus, as disciples, is not something that we can do alone. We can't do this by ourselves. Hebrews three says this: take care, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you uh, to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A huge part of discipleship in what we know and particularly how we live is that we need other people to exhort us. Man, do I need it. If I am living contrary to what the word of God tells me to live and how I treat people and the rest of my life, my actions, I need a brother in the Lord to come alongside and give me a good swift kick. To exhort me, to say, hey, your actions don't line up with your words. Change it. Because that's what a true disciple is all about, to follow the ways of Jesus. I need that. Other people need it. You need it. We need to speak into each other's lives to show us the errors we can't see ourselves. It's necessary for the Christian life of discipleship. So the next question is who? Who's supposed to be our mentors? If everyone's called to be a disciple, who are we supposed to mentor? The answer is also in verse 2, 2 Timothy Chapter two, Timothy is the mentor. Timothy is both the disciple and the mentor. He is supposed to disciple someone else who will go on to disciple someone else and mentor them and so on. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a disciple. I talked about that later. In fact, that's what we're supposed to be known as first and foremost, a disciple of Jesus. And if you're a disciple, you are called to be a mentor. And that's where a lot of us get a little bit worried, right? I mean, I love the idea of having someone who's going to help me, guide me, give me, you know, the, <laughs> the sage wisdom when I need it. Eldon, this is what you should do. This is the decision you should make. Someone who has the right thing to say no matter but what, but when the tables are turned, I just don't feel up to the task. Does uh, anybody identify with me? Yeah. Who am I to speak into someone else's life? And this is also true. The people who think they're up to it, the ones who are really excited to go around and tell everybody what to do and how they should live, they're the ones actually that we should probably be more afraid of because they probably haven't been discipled themselves. So there's two extremes, ones that won't do it and ones that are too eager to do it. You gotta earn the right to speak into someone's life and it sure helps when you're invited. Although, if you see a younger person and you see great potential and you uh, have a connection and you identify with that person, you say, would you mind if we spent a little time together? We're going to talk about under, that under application later. So how exactly are we supposed to do this? So now this is where we're going to back up and go, and we're going to start at the goal. Um, we started, sorry, we started with the goal, verse 2. Now let's back up and look at the means. This is uh, the second thing, mentoring in grace. This is the means. Paul said, you then, my child, Timothy, 
be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the reality. Paul knew that what he was asking of Timothy was beyond him. What God asks of each one of us, his disciples, is beyond us. You know, Paul wrote in in 1 Corinthians that the church was to follow him as he followed Christ. Even the, the goal of imitating Christ and following Christ is beyond everybody, let alone investing that, entrusting that to someone else. And that's why Paul begins this chapter with a command. Be strengthened. You can't do this by yourself. Before Paul even begins talking about mentoring someone else and passing on the faith, he tells Timothy he's first to take his strength from Christ and in his grace. So having just finished a, a, a series uh, on the Trinity, right? The, uh, we realize that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the power and the strength to do everything in our Christian life. The Holy Spirit, Spirit was sent by Jesus from the Father. And we cannot do this apart from the Spirit's work in our lives. So mentors are to be defined by God's work that is evident in their lives. And we can't do that from a distant, a distance. We can't. We have to know our mentors. We have to see God's work in their life. Um, I, uh, I, you've heard me say this many times, but I direct and facilitate Freedom Session quite regularly. And in Freedom Session, we have um, accountability partners. And I talked about accountability a few weeks ago or earlier in January. And, and then there's a sponsor relationship where, where one person in Freedom Session meets one-on-one with a sponsor who is like a mentor, a person who listens to your, li- your life story, your inventories, a person who will pray for you, encourage you, and spend time with you as allows somebody that you can phone up and, and say, I, I need your advice and your input. It's different than accountability. Accountability Uh, relationships, you're on the same level, so to speak, at the same point in life with another person. But a mentor has to be somebody who is more spiritually mature than you, who has already worked their own uh, uh, healing discipleship path where they've allowed God to do the work in their life to get them to the point where they are. And then you go to them because they're beyond you in a good way. They've worked through the same things that you're now working through and you can go to them and say, I need advice. I need help, need support, need your input, need your prayers. The point is, do we really know this person? Is there clear evidence of God's work in their daily living? Can I see God at work in their marriage, in their job, in their home? Are they good with with parenting, with money? Do they have a good reputation before we allow them to speak into our lives? We need to fully consider what their lives look like. Hebrews 13 says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. A person's message and their life must be connected. The proof is in the pudding. You know, we've gotten so used to social media, Twitter accounts, podcasts, celebrity pastors, all of that kind of stuff. And we say, well, they're, they're mentoring me, they're discipling me. Well, we're learning from them. But a mentor is somebody that we actually know. Boots on the ground, here, real, personal relationship with a credible person. They should not be anonymous. They should not be distant. They should be accessible. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul wrote, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. Paul said, you know what? It's good to have all these people speaking into your life. You've got teachers here and there, even in other churches. But you need a father. A father is somebody who you live with, who has a close relationship with you, accessible, intimate. You can watch their life and see how they react in different circumstances. You can see when they drop their guard. You're aware of their failures or their successes. You know how their decisions turn out. I want to get back to Ike, Ralph, and Ken. Ike is actually my uncle through marriage. So my mom, uh, my mom and uh, Ike's wife, Shirley, are sisters. And so Ike, um, I spent a lot of time at his house for that reason. But I saw... I saw that family at their best and at their worst sometimes. Not at their worst too often, but I saw how they handled discipline, conflict. I saw, um, I saw how Ike treated Shirley and the affection that he had for her. I, saw, I went on trips with them. When I was in high school, I lived with Ralph, who's an associate pastor at the church. I lived with him and his family for uh, a season, a whole school year. And there was many things that stood out to me, but I mean, one of them was that Grace was a fantastic host and she could bake the, the most killer coffee cake you could imagine. Oh, melt in your mouth. But you know what? Those, those folks, they didn't just make coffee cake for themselves. They made it for others and there was always people around the table sharing this with. And one of the guys was a, was a guy named Rick, still lives in Saskatoon. He's now leading a street ministry for uh, homeless and largely to indigenous people who live on the streets of Saskatoon. And so, <clears throat> and so <laughs> anyway, Rick lived in the apartments right across from uh, the church in Saskatoon where Ralph was a pastor and where I started to attend when I met Marcy. I moved into Saskatoon, lived with my sister for a while, then another family, then with Ralph. Got to know Rick. Rick was involved in all kinds of stuff that would make your hair curl. And uh, some, and he was like, he was hardcore. Uh, unbeliever to the 10th degree. Walked into the church one day because he was ready to end his life. He was that messed up. And he sat down in Ralph's office and they had a talk and Ralph says, you need to come home with me. Invited him into the house, and I'm there. Linda and Luann, Ralph and Grace's kids were there, and they're younger than me. They're about, you know, up to my shoulder. I'm like their older brother. Grace is there, baking coffee cake. Ralph puts out the ashtray, because Rick was a heavy smoker. Go ahead and smoke. We're going to talk. And through a series of many meetings in his home, led Rick to faith in Christ. He, he's become a strong leader now, in, not only in the church, but in the city, reaching people like he was. Amazing. And I saw that, because I lived with them. And then Ken, he's actually the author of Freedom Session. I've, I was in their home many times. I looked after their kids. Marcy and I babysat their kids. We, Ken took his water skiing. He took me for breakfast weekly. During high school, he spent so much time with the kids. He was our youth sponsor, which was kind of like his full-time job outside of his full-time job as a mechanic. 
The guy worked 80 hours a week just so he could invest in, in teens. And I was one of them. So Paul tells Timothy to be strengthened in grace. Why? Because no one is perfect. The closer we get to someone, the more our sin and our failures and theirs too will be known. But that's the thing. How do we work through those things is important. Not that we, it's not important that we fail, that we sin. It's how, what we do with it. <laughs> do we trust Christ? Do we repent? Do we, be, do we seek forgiveness and make amends and move forward in our lives? And we need people to walk that journey with us. In fact, we learn the most, we learn the most from failure, don't we? We don't learn it through the successes of life. We learn when things go sideways. And that's where we need people to walk alongside. But, and here's where this passage kind of addresses the biggest excuse is, you know, I don't have it all together. I don't know enough. Who am I? And here's, you know, you're right. But that's not a reason to not do it. God's grace by the power of his Holy Spirit will help you. And what does it mean to be strengthened in grace as Paul talks about? It means you, you go on your knees in prayer and you ask God for wisdom, for opportunity, for courage, and then you just start doing it. Because if we're going to wait until we have it all together, we will never do it. I, I, I tell young couples who are thinking about getting married or maybe they're engaged and they come to me and they say, well, you know, we, we're just going to wait till we have enough money before we get married. I'm like, you're going to be waiting an awful long time and I don't think you'll ever get married to be honest with you because you'll never have enough money. Same with having kids. It's like, oh man, we got to have this much in our bank account. I said, forget it. Forget it. If God gives you ability and the calling to have children, then do it. If money is, is your excuse, you will never do it. People can make an excuse for anything to not do something. And it's the same with discipling or mentoring someone else. You just got to start and rely on the grace and the strength and the power of the Lord Jesus through his Spirit. So here's the summary so far. Disciples are those who are entrusted with the faith and love of Jesus. And mentors are those who are willing to pass it on in the grace of God. And here's the final point, number three, the church commission. Some of you may be thinking, well, this is really good for pastors to do. <clears throat> That's why we have Tyler Schultz as an elder of our church. You know, he's called to do this kind of thing. That's true. But this is Jesus' commission to the entire church. The whole church is charged with the commission to make disciples. The great commission is, Matthew 28, all authority, Jesus said, is on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go, to all the disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples who will obey commands, who will go make disciples, who will go make more disciples. The work of every Christian. So what does this look like in the church as we wind down? Titus 2 is a good place to start. Titus 2 says this, but as far as, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, there's the teaching. Sound doctrine, here it is. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. Why does Paul pick on women about drinking wine? I was like, why is that? Does anybody have a good answer for me? 
Men have their vices too, okay? Like we all, we all have them. We're supposed to be dignified. Self-controlled. Oh, there it is, self-controlled. Okay, they, older women and older men, are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and wives. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. What's the command for the church? Simple. Older men teach younger men. Older women teach younger women. Entrust to others what has been entrusted to you just like a big family. How do we start? Practically. Well, I want to say this. Teaching kids ministry. Uh, Vivian and uh, Pastor Crystal aren't here right now, otherwise they would have just heard, you would have just heard a big amen. Right? Start teaching in kids ministry. It's actually where I got my start in ministry. Pastor Ralph said, you know, I was living at his place. He said, Eldon, we're running DVBS and you're in charge. I went, DVB what? And I'm what? And I said, really, you're in charge. Build a team and you're in charge of the kids this summer. I'd never done this before. It was terrifying. Then Ken Dick comes along and he includes me on his little youth executive. That should have been my first sign to run. But (laughs) no, he says, Eldon, I want you on my team. And he taught me how to prepare a Bible study. And he did things with other youth groups. And I remember one of the first Bibles, no, I led some in our our group just at West Portal, but then I, I led a Bible study for like three, four other churches where we had this big thing together. Again at Edmonton. What is it with Edmonton? There was all these churches that came together. We went for a trip. You know, we went to West Edmonton Mall, did all the fun stuff, but then we had worship nights and, and um, the kids, the youth, some of the youth were preaching and I was one of them. I haven't a clue what I said. I was terrified. Ken probably smiled and laughed the whole time. But there I was doing what he had taught me. And here I am today because of people who took a chance on a, on a kid like me. If we, if we truly believe and understand this call in our lives, uh, children's ministry and youth ministry, hey, Cody, can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Cindy's involved. Who else is involved in youth ministry here? There's, there's a few, maybe oh, those two for now. <laughs> Sorry, there's more. They're just not here. They should be turning people away. And there's times where we beg for leaders. In years past, pre-COVID, I actually seriously considered shutting down the Sunday morning service when we didn't have enough people to teach the kids. I thought, man, all of us can go in that room and start teaching right now. All of us can. I know we can. And And here's a couple of more excuses that people give. Well, I don't know how to do that. And I don't have the time. Okay, I'm gonna debunk both of those right now. Central has amazing children's pastor and coordinators who write their own material and they get resources from all manner of places and the craft supplies and you name it, here it is and we'll teach you how to use it. There's no excuse. Second, you have time. This is one thing that Ken taught me. He said, Eldon, eliminate a couple of words from your vocabulary. One is I'm too busy and I don't have time, and I find myself using those quite a bit. He said, start telling people that you didn't make it a priority, because that's the truth. 
what you value, you have time for. Always. You just didn't make it a priority if you didn't do it. So, did I do a good job debunking those two excuses? Yes. Older men are supposed to teach younger men. Older women are supposed to teach younger women. And there's a couple of other ways that we can do this. Time's getting long. You know me, long-winded. Um, do you enjoy eating breakfast? Come on, Jeremy. Woohoo! Yep. yep. Amen. Okay, amen. Do it with someone. Invite someone to breakfast of the same gender. Talk, pray, ask questions. Anything you're struggling with? What has God taught you in his word in the last couple of weeks? Is there anything that I can help you with? How can I pray for you? Can we start a Bible reading plan together? What are some of the challenges that are facing you right now? Do you like walking, running, riding your bike, motorcycle, quilting, playing games, putting together a puzzle, going for ice cream? Do it with somebody. Get them around your table. Go for a bike ride. Talk. Let them see your house in a mess. Let them see how you treat your kids and your spouse. Do you have access to the internet? Know how to turn a TV on? Freedom Session is making it easier and easier and easier to mentor and guide a couple of people. All you need to do is buy a few workbooks and say, I want to spend 28 weeks with you and I'm going to enter the mess of your life and we're going to figure this out together. The teaching is provided. All we got to do is make some notes and do some homework and walk with each other. There's all kinds of ways we can do this. Marriages and parenting are, are so crucial these days and there's so many marriages that are like in trouble. Don't wait until you're ready to call it quits. Go to a couple that's been married for 30, 40, or 50 years and say, can I come to your place? Because I want to know why you guys haven't killed each other yet. How come you're together still? Like, what, what, what's the secret? And uh, you, you need to know how they handled failure, how they handled suffering. You know what Paul goes on to talk to Timothy next about? Suffering. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, right afterwards, suffering. Go to an older couple. Tell me about your sufferings. How did you handle them? What have you lost? What did you do with business failure? How much money have you lost? What did you do about that? What did you do when you got fired from your job? Anyway, I better wrap this up. <laughs> you may be saying, here's another excuse. Well, I was never mentored, so how can I do this? My response is, don't let it happen to the next generation. If, if you haven't been, and the next generation won't be, the third one is hooped. We have to start now so that these kids, so that these teenagers have something that will carry them the rest of their lives. And trust me, the future does not look, <laughs> I gotta be careful how I say this, on earth it looks bleak, but our future is bright. And our children and our teenagers need that hope. 
we have been given a commission by Jesus to make disciples. And it will never stop until he returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the deep, challenging conviction that it's brought to my life. Lord, you reminded me again this week that I can be a very unintentional. So help me, God, to take this seriously and to invest in others, even as men like Ike and Ralph and Ken and Ron have poured into me and have shaped who I am. Help me to do that to others, to pass on the good news of Jesus, the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Help us all with that, in Jesus' name, amen.